have absolutely loved studying the Battle of Jericho. Um, it's a story I'd heard and read before, but never really studied. And I had no idea how many significant things were packed into this passage and how um, important it was. In fact, about a week or so ago, I had to make myself stop doing research and looking up more verses because I was never going to be able to pull my thoughts together to tell you anything intelligent. And so we are going to just scratch the surface of this passage and how amazing it is. As you know, we are looking this summer at stories, and I want to talk to you for a minute about Pete the Cat stories. I'm not sure any of you are familiar with Pete the Cat. These are from the public library. Um, I have five nieces and nephews between the ages of three and eight, and Pete the Cat is very famous in our family. Um, We read Pete the Cat stories. We talk about Pete the Cat. We have Pete the Cat animals and puppets. We quote Pete the Cat. So, okay, to find out if you're a real Pete the Cat fan, let me hear you. Did Pete cry? Thank you. Goodness, no. A real Pete the Cat fan. Yes. Well, um, this is I Love My White Shoes, Pete the Cat and his four groovy buttons, um, Pete the Cat rocking in my school shoes. Um, In um, April, I was in South Carolina, which is where my family lives, And my nephew, actually, on his fourth birthday, he loves the children's museum that we have in South Carolina and Columbia called Adventure. So on his birthday, I got to take him with his cousins to Adventure. And on top of that, totally unexpectedly, it was Pete the Cat Day at Adventure. (laughs) Seriously. So Pete the Cat, a person dressed as Pete the Cat, obviously, shows up, and you... Like, I have never seen him so excited. Like, when Pete the Cat came in, and he looks at Pete the Cat, he follows Pete the Cat around, he touches Pete the Cat. And Grant's that kind of kid that when he gets excited, like, his whole body is excited. You know, like, he's kind of bouncing, and his arms are moving. He was in love with and so excited about Pete the Cat. It was this character from this book that had totally come to life to him. And there's a sense in which I think we all want to and need to be excited about um, the main character in this story who actually is God himself. So my hope is that as we study through this, we will have a taste of that excitement that you have as a child when you get to encounter or meet uh, in a personal way the character of a story that is so exciting and that you love so much. So we are going to do that as we study the Battle of Jericho. I'm going to talk about the history in just a minute, but I want us to first introduce this main character. And we see it right off the bat in Joshua chapter 5. So open your Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua is greeted by the commander of the Lord's army, and he says, Whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And the commander says, Nope, not even the right question. (laughs) Like, you are not even close. Something totally different is happening here, and you haven't even hit the right question. Many theologians believe, I'm inclined to agree with them, that the 
commander of the Lord's army is actually an appearance of the Lord himself, maybe the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, We don't have the time to look into all the fun research that I got to do, but one of the reasons I think that it's likely that this is the case is because we see that Joshua worships him, and we're only supposed to worship the Lord, and that seems to be an appropriate thing to do. So I think that there's a good chance that this is appearance of the Lord himself. And this commander comes in and begins to reframe this whole battle that is getting ready to take place. And real clearly we see that God is in charge. This is not primarily Joshua's battle or the battle of the nation of Israel. God is in charge. And not only that, can you imagine Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army, he shows up before you and his sword is drawn. He is ready for battle. God is a strong warrior. Joshua would have heard stories and have seen himself instances of where God in the past had defeated armies, had done incredibly powerful things, such as when God parted the Red Sea and took out the Egyptian army that was following the nation of Israel. So this battle has totally been reframed. God is in charge. God is an incredibly strong warrior. And then we see Joshua's response and what the commander says to him. God is holy. This is a whole different category. God is different, perfect, transcendent. We've moved into an entirely other category. This is not a simple battle with just a different commander. God is in charge, strong warrior, and he is holy. The main character of our story shows up right off the bat. We then move into something that I think is interesting in in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 6. We see now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Go ahead and put the first map up there, please. We're going to look at that and see Jericho kind of in the middle, just so you know where we are. We're going to lay out the history of how we got here. The um, nation of Israel, which Joshua's been leading, has just crossed over the Jordan from the east to the west, and they are getting ready for this battle at Jericho. And the Lord makes a statement to Joshua that I think is interesting. The battle has not happened yet. They're waiting for the battle. And the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. No battle has happened yet. And yet we see this promise take place. God and his promise are on center stage. Joshua is promised and given the land before this battle occurs. And so I want you to pull out your verse sheet because you are going to be really excited to see how long this promise has been around and how significant this battle is dating back all the way to Genesis. Um, Pull out also your pen because as we read through a number of verses, when you see the word land or lands, I want you to circle it and understand it. In Genesis 12, we're going to work through a bunch of these, and I want you to see how this is not the first time that this promise has been made. Um, The Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, we also know him as Abraham. He was in Ur at the time, which is east of Jericho and east of this land of Canaan. And the Lord says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And they set out to the land of what? Canaan. Okay. They arrive, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay? You see how this land is promised way back to Abraham in Genesis. It's not just mentioned once, and I'm just giving us a sample. I want you to see how often this promise has come up in the Old Testament. Genesis 26.4 to Abraham's son Isaac. Listen to what the Lord says again. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. Genesis 35.12. Again, to Isaac's son Jacob, we see the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay, a lot of time passes. Um, This promise still holds. The nation grows as God told Abraham it would. It becomes a great nation. They are enslaved in Egypt, taken away for 400 years. And then the Lord decides he's going to send someone to bring them out of slavery. Well, when God sends Moses, let's see what he says and what's promised again. I think you know where we're going, but we have to see how it is so repeated and so significant. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. So they travel, Moses brings them out. They've been to a place similar to this before. They're standing there. Moses sends in spies and says, hey, go check out the land. Joshua, this guy we're reading about, and Caleb, two of them, go in and say, the people are strong, but we can take it. Let's go. God's on our side. And the other ten say, no way, too strong, not going in. So they don't go in. But even at this time, what happens in Numbers 13, 1 and 2? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. So they don't go in. They don't take the land at this time. Actually, they try to take the land after they realize they've not done what the Lord tells them to do. But it doesn't go well because God's not with them. But does God bail on the promise? Even though they've been there, he was going to give it to them. Does he bail on the promise? Well, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And then what happens? Moses says to Joshua and the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31. Does the promise go away? No. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. So even though the nation of Israel disobeys, we see this promise going all the way back to Genesis to Abraham. God has made And God is keeping his promise that has been around for a really long time. It all of a sudden makes you realize what happens here in this battle is far more significant than just one little battle for the nation of Israel. There's an immense amount of history here. There's a lot riding on this. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a why person. And... Since we, if, if I was you and sitting out there, I mean, I've seen the promise. Does part of you want to go, well, why did he promise him that? 
Like, did Abraham do something for him so this was just some deal God gave him back? You know, like he says, I'm going to give you this land, but like, like, like why? Do you wonder why? Like, I wonder why. Like, why are we here? Like, why? I mean, we know why it's a big deal. God's made a promise, but like, why? Look at Deuteronomy and you're going to see why. I'm a why person. I want to know why. So let's read in Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 11 and see why. Why has God made this promise and why is he keeping it? For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So why did God do this? Because he's loving. He is a loving giver. Israel didn't deserve this. They weren't special because they were smarter or nicer or any of that. It's a reflection upon the character of God that he's so loving, that he's a giver, that he's made and kept these promises for centuries. And we are seeing proven out before our eyes how faithful God is. At times Israel has been faithful. At times the nation of Israel hasn't been. But God is faithful and is bringing this to pass. As I was studying this, I would get so excited, like with Grant getting excited. I'm like, much more is at stake here than simply can God knock some walls down? Like when I was a kid and learned the song Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho, which I will not sing for you, um, you can thank me later. Um, a lot more is at stake than just God knocking down some walls. We're seeing his character, his promise, his faithfulness on display and to an extent, at stake here. Like, what's going to happen? Like, a lot, in a sense, is riding on this. Can God be trusted? Is God good? Is he a strong word? Like, is he who he's proclaimed to be way back to Genesis with Abraham? Well, let's head in and see what happens. God comes and he outlines a battle strategy. And let's read about that in Joshua, starting in chapter 3. I mean, chapter 6, verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Okay, the ark, the ark of the covenant is going to be mentioned a lot. Look for how often this comes up. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... Then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to him, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord." 
If you had time in your questions, you were able to read back in Exodus 25, 10 through 22 about the ark. And the ark, historically for the nation of Israel, symbolized and really mediated God's presence and their relationship with him. And so as the ark is central, going around, God is central and God is on display here. It's very obvious that the ark needed to be there. It's mentioned multiple times. God is central and God is on display. Now in this next map we're going to show you, it's a rendering of what the um, city of Jericho may have looked like. The circumference of the wall was probably about 600 meters that they would walk around. And I have to think for a minute, if I was interviewing, not that you interview for these things, but if you were going to be interviewed for what's your battle strategy, if you wanted to be a battle strategist, now I am not and don't anticipate it ever will be, but can you imagine walking in and saying, here's the strategy. Well, to start off in preparation, I'd like for all your men to be circumcised. <laughs> it's not really what you normally think about. And then we're going to have your commander, Joshua, like prostrate on the ground before another commander, you know, the commander of the Lord's army, who's obviously it's on his side, but this is interesting. And then I would like for you to take the priest and in a not so subtle, sly, surprising manner, like blow instruments as you all walk around a city wall. I mean, and you're carrying an ark, so you're probably not moving real quickly. And go do the same thing for six days and then longer on a seventh day. And, you know, the walls where they can, like, see you and potentially throw things down on you? Like, is anyone thinking that Joshua has thought to himself, gee, I hope that's what the Lord wants us to do? <laughs> no. God's plans and ways are different. This battle is looking incredibly different than a battle strategy than even I, who doesn't know anything, would come up with. Fair? Okay, so we've got this going on, and as you've read, does the battle strategy work? Because it's a great strategy? No. Because there's a powerful victor who is God himself who is winning this battle. This is God's battle God's promise, God's victory. So clearly, it gives me chills even as I'm standing here. So, I want us to see, as we go on, what happened. As I mentioned, the last time the nation of Israel was near this place didn't go so well. They didn't do what God told them to do. And then after they realized, oh no, we've messed up, they tried to go in by themselves, without the Lord, without Moses, without the Ark of the Covenant, and guess what happens? didn't go so well. So they're again charged to trust the Lord and believe in the Lord, and this time they do. So let's read um, what did they do. They did exactly what God told them to do. Just imagine picturing this and imagine what it must have been like. Starting in verse 8, And just as Joshua had commanded the people... The seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. 
But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to do. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came up into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did it for six days. God is leading them, and this time the nation of Israel is following. And then what happens? Let's read on. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she'd hid the messengers whom we sent. We're going to come back to that. So we're keeping on going, but we're going to come back and talk about that. Verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when lest when you have devoted them and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. We're going to talk about that too. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Is God faithful? Does God a powerful victor? Does God keep his promise? Does he actually lovingly give them what he told you they were going to give? Absolutely. We see that God takes care of his own. He's promised this to the nation of Israel, long, long history going back. Israel follows him and they see God takes care of his own. And not only that, you have to imagine that they, even though it's crazy, even though they'd been through some hard things, even though they had disobeyed a lot, that God is worth trusting and following. They are seeing and experiencing who God is and his promise, and they, this time, have chosen to obey so, I kind of wish we could just stop and have a celebration party, but God gives us even more to see here because I want you to see that he's promised them the whole land of Canaan, not just the battle of Jericho. And so this is one battle of many to come, and we're going to look at some of the things that we see in here for how God is looking to the future and setting up some things in the future. I told you we were going to go back and talk about Rahab, and we are. Um, if you happen to be here last week, which was totally fine if you didn't, if you couldn't be here, it's fine. But Deb taught us a great lesson about Rahab and how when the spies had gone in to check out Jericho before this battle, the Canaanites, the people in Jericho, had not received them well and were very um, 
the people of the land of Canaan are incredibly evil. They did many evil things, child sacrifices, did not follow the Lord, did many, I mean, they're just evil. There's no other way to say it. But there was this one lady, Rahab, who actually was a prostitute, who had heard about God, believed in God, and went to the spies and said, I'll protect you. Will you protect my family? Now we've seen God's made a promise to the nation of Israel, and he's promised to care for them and give this in this land. There should be a little of us that wonders, is he going to let an outsider in? Like he's not their ethnicity, he's not their history. Does he want and welcome people of different ages, different genders, different places, different nations who believe in and follow him? As we're setting up the land of Canaan for the nation of Israel, and he's telling us to take some other people out, what's going to happen for anyone that wants to believe in him? Well, let's see in verse 22 what happens. Does God take care of Rahab? Let's look. But to the two men who'd spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from there, out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp, probably outside the camp only temporarily because of some purification parts of the nation of Israel. But we see in verse 25 what happens. They're not outside the camp forever. But Rahab and the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Yes, God loves his chosen people. But yes, also, exemplified by Rahab, God welcomes and wants all who believe and all who follow in faith. Not just certain people from a certain country of a certain race of a certain perfection level. Not at all. That's not how it works. Now, probably, maybe not, the most troubling part for you as you've read this, I know that you read through this story and as a woman you kind of want to skip over a little part of this, which we're not allowed to do. All of God's word is written for us, so we need to look at it. And we see very clearly that God has said, and all these people, I want you to take them out. Young and old animals, I don't know about you, but that is not my favorite part of the best. <laughs> but it's there, so we've got to look at it. Because God has told them to do it. And do they do this too? Yes. Look in verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put um, and they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. They do what God tells them to do. Now, I'm not under the delusion that I'm going to make you love this part of the passage, but I at least think we should stop and look at a little bit about why God would say this, not that we're going to fully understand why God does everything. And frankly, God is God and he's created it. And he can do it however he wants it. He really can. But he's shown us a little bit of why. And so I think we need to look at a little bit of why because I think it will resonate with us some. Look on your verse sheet at Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Why would God say this to the nation of Israel? Why did he want them to destroy these people? But in the cities 
of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that you may not, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so that you sin against the Lord your God. Why was part of why he wanted them gone? Because he didn't want Israel and the people to follow down that path. He was looking to the future and he was trying to be a wise protector for them. He wanted them to not get involved in the evil, to turn away from him and to experience all the things that could happen. And I don't know about you, but I know as I think about my own life and people around me, aren't there sometimes people that you know of that have gotten in with a crowd that have gotten in with a people and it's totally destroyed their life now granted they've made their choices but you so wish that they could just be around a different group and around a different people i think we resonate with that heart that wants people we love to be protected from evil and protected from consequences and that's part of what god is doing here and to be honest while Israel obeyed at this specific battle, as we keep reading the stories in Joshua, sometimes they didn't. And to be honest, exactly what God wanted not to happen happened when they didn't do this. So when they didn't obey, the protection and wisdom that God was trying to set up for them didn't happen. There's another reason that um, God tells them to destroy them. Look with me on your verse seat at Genesis 15, verse 16. This is, again, way back in Genesis, way back at the beginning. God makes this promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, and there's a little bit of you that goes, well, why don't we just do it now? Let's, let's go. And um, among many reasons, of which I'm sure I don't know all of them, one of the reasons we see at the end of this verse says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is a judge, and he will bring judgment on evil. But back with Abraham, it wasn't time yet. He was a patient, just judge. And until their deeds in their heart was that, I don't know if the level of evil, that's not what I want to say. But God knew that justice needed to happen, but at the right time, after all the amount of patience, in the right way, after the right amount of things. And as hard as it is to read, and as hard sometimes as judgment is, even in our earth, do we really want judges who aren't just and who will never bring punishment upon evil? You know, like, no, we don't. Now, I still don't expect this to be your favorite part of the passage, but it's in there, and I think we can get a little bit of the heart of why God is right in what he does. He's been a patient, just judge, but he will judge. And he will judge righteously and he will judge evil. And there's a part of us that really likes that. And we understand his desire to be a wise protector as he loved this people so much and wants the best for them and is willing to welcome in even Rahab, a representation of anyone who wants to believe in and follow God in faith. So let's step back. Oh, sorry. I want to read the end real quick. 26 and 27. Joshua laid an oath on them and at that time said, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. He says, 
Nobody gets to rebuild it. At the cost of the firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his younger son shall he set up its gates. There will be a consequence for anyone who rebuilds the city of Israel. In 1 Kings, guess what happens? Somebody rebuilds the nation of Israel. Guess what happens? The judgment God said was going to happen, happens. Uh, Verse 27, for the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Looking back for a minute, I want us to look back at, um, we've already established that God clearly is the central character here. But how did the nation of Israel respond? How did Joshua respond? Well, we see back in Joshua 5, 14 and 15, what does Joshua do among other things? He worships. He sees who God is. He's awed. He's excited. He's taken. He sees God's holiness and sees who he is and he worships. And we also see that the nation of Israel does what? They believe and they actually follow in faith. So I want us to begin to think in our lives as we're trying to think about and take to apply this. Um, When I read a story in the scriptures, I always have to think carefully because just because somebody does something in a story doesn't mean I should do it or not do it. I have to think what and how to rightly apply this to me. And certainly I as I thought about it, I'm like, well, there's plenty of other opportunities in Scripture where God says we are to worship him, so I feel confident saying that's an appropriate application. We also are going to see how we are supposed to believe and follow in faith. Look with me at your verse sheet, and I want you to see something really interesting. Remember the nation of Israel had been here before, and they had not obeyed and followed God in? I want you to see what God says part of the problem is because it's so relevant to this story. Look in Numbers 14, 11. And the Lord says to Moses, how long would this people despise me and how long will they not believe? Underline that. God says, how long are they not going to believe in me in spite of the signs that I've done among them? God says part of the reason that they did not obey was they did not believe. Now let's look in contrast in Hebrews What does Hebrews have to tell us about part of why Joshua and the nation of Israel and even Rahab obeyed? Look in Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for several days, seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay, think with me for just a minute. I've prayed that we'd all walk out with at least one thing that really resonates for us. And so I want you to look back through some of those characteristics of God. And just for yourself, is there one that really excited you? That really kind of made you want to worship? Put a star beside that one. Maybe you want to think about it as you're driving home or play a worship song or read a passage about that. What is it that kind of like Grant just made you kind of want to smile and get a little... Get a little giddy and made you want to worship. Secondarily, I want to challenge us all about this belief, obey, belief, follow, and faith thing. I want you to think for just a minute about how these two are really connected. Um, You know, I just thought, okay, what is something that sometimes is an area of obedience that we all just think, oh, whatever, it's too hard, everyone does it. And I thought, you know, gossip is really something I think we can all get drawn into in some form, and we may think, eh, they're way worse things, it's really not that big of a deal. Well, think for a minute. If you really believed, if I really believed 
God was holy? Would I accept that excuse? Would I gossip if I really, really believed God was holy? Yes, it's an obedience problem, but there's also areas that my faith needs to grow. Or think about God being a loving giver. If you really believe God is a loving giver, are you going to try to control every nuance of your finances? Are you going to wrench your fingers in fear and anxiety and choose not to give? If you really believe God is a loving giver. Or maybe you think, there's just an area in my life that I've struggled with forever and there is just no way out. I've just given up. I can't get over this anxiety. I can't get over this pornography. I can't get over this anger. I can't get whatever it is. Do you really believe that God is a powerful victor? I mean, if we really believed that, wouldn't that be something that would impact our obedience? So I encourage all of us to think about how those two things are connected. And maybe you need to call a good friend and say, hey, I've got this thing. Will you help pray with me through this? Or how, how can I really process this, not just to do the right thing, but to connect it back to understanding what's going on in your heart that can help build that faith-obedience connection? Um, I just want to encourage you with that um, as really, I think, a pertinent application from this of how these things are supposed to work together. Um, just because I'm up here, you'll get to hear mine. Um, there's loads of things I've loved about this passage. If you've been around me the past week or two, I kind of don't shut up about it. Um, but of all the things, um, one of the things that I've thought about and just loved so much is I love this picture of the nation of Israel being in a place with a battle they couldn't win and somebody showing up to fight the battle for them. And the reality is that I'm a sinner deserving of death And Jesus walked in and did everything to die on the cross and be raised again and to win the battle over sin and death for me. And I never could have done it on my own. And he's that strong warrior that comes in and does it, and he's made a promise to me far greater than the land of Canaan. He said, there's a place called heaven, no sin, no suffering, no pain, no sin. It's coming in your future. I've made a promise that you're going to get that in the future. And the passage that's come to my mind that I've read several times and thought about and just kind of makes me want to like Grant get a little bit excited about how there'll be a day that this strong warrior returns and this promise that we've been waiting for will be fulfilled for everyone who's believed in and followed the Lord. And so I'm going to read for you this passage of this strong warrior, Jesus Christ, from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, Jesus, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes more. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me pray.
Jesus, you are a strong warrior. And you have been so uh, merciful and kind and a loving giver to me. And you want and desire to welcome in anyone who wants to believe in you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's never believed and trusted you, that they would do that right now because that's your heart to welcome and want people to come in. And for those of us um, who've just believed or have believed a long time ago, I pray you'd really draw our, our heart and our mind to worship, that we would have that childlike sense of excitement and joy at just worshiping and seeing who you are. And I pray that through that, you would build our faith such that we would actually believe and follow you in faith in those areas that are hard, in those areas that are easy. Thanks for being so merciful to us because none of us do it perfectly. But I pray that you would help grow each one of us in that area. And I just want to praise you, Jesus, that you came and fought the battle of sin and death that none of us could win. And you've made a promise to all those in Christ of a land far better. We worship. We can't wait. The battle and the victory are so yours, and all the honor and praise and worship is yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.